Welcome to Brand New Doctor. My name is Rola Carajo, doctor turned healthcare graphic designer and brand strategist. This is the show where we share big ideas and look for inspiration in all kinds of places to help you grow a fulfilling career in healthcare. Following a path to success is one thing, but carving your own is another. So this is for you if you want to go beyond book smart. So I am joined today by Chris French. He is a social entrepreneur who has worked in the health sector for over 10 years. And he's got a very interesting and varied background. He's worked on many community projects. He's worked in health regulation and health policy and strategy at PwC. He's even worked for a time as a special constable for the Metropolitan Police. But maybe that's a story for another time. So Chris is a community advocate working with integrated care systems, local authorities and charities to tackle health inequalities in South London through his consultancy, Solico. He's created Lambeth Links, which is the LGBTIQ plus forum in Lambeth, which serves as a central point of communication and advocacy on behalf of what is the largest LGBTIQ plus community in the UK. And Chris is also involved in politics. He'll be running as the Liberal Democrat candidate for Southwark and Lambeth for the London Assembly next year, and as a parliamentary candidate for Vauxhall and Camberwell in the next general election. But where Chris and I met is Health Foundry, where he is the director of strategy. So Health Foundry is a co-working space supporting companies and individuals working in digital health with educational resources, guidance, and networking opportunities. So today we'll be talking more about his work at Health Foundry. We'll also talk about strategy and creating connections to achieve big goals in our personal lives and in our communities. Welcome to the show, Chris. It is such a pleasure to have you. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. You have a really diverse portfolio in terms of your career in healthcare, which I think will be really interesting to a lot of people because it's not the norm for many of us working in this space in healthcare. So can you tell me about your journey? How did you arrive here? And was this the kind of career that you envisioned for yourself? Um, it, it really wasn't. So I, I went to university as a mature student. Um, I didn't do uh, great in my GCSEs and I didn't do any A-levels either. And so I decided I want to go to university later on in life and did an access to higher education certificate, which gives you the equivalent grades to get to uni. Um, so I went to Goldsmiths um, and I studied international relations, international politics. And like many graduates at that time, when you, you know, graduate looking for a job, um, applied for literally hundreds. Um, and I was invited to interview at the Health and Care Professions Council working in their registration department. They're a regulator of um, allied health professionals like paramedics, physiotherapists, and also biomedical scientists. And I was successful in getting a role there, eventually working in their call center. But that was my first step into the health kind of policy, health strategy field. Had no idea about it before. I didn't even know such regulators existed. Um, so I became very knowledgeable very quickly. Wow. So that's, that's the very beginning of your, of your story and compared to where you are now, it's, it's amazing because I think that particularly in healthcare, working in healthcare, people feel as if you have to do everything perfectly right from the start and have everything strictly planned out. But it's, it's really cool to hear that you've, in a sense, you've kind of 
you've rolled with the punches and you've made things happen as you've gone along and, and you've just, you know, learned as much as you can on the, on the job as well. Absolutely. And the thing with the, the HCPC is that it's about public protection. It's about making sure that people are safe. If, if a health professional is uh, accused of doing something wrong or you know, making a quite serious mistake, then there's a process in place which looks at their, their fitness of practice is what it's called. Um, and it's not punitive in the sense of just going out after people to, you know, to do them wrong. It is about that public protection element. Is that person safe to practice? But they would look at a whole range of things to say, well, at the time this happened, this was the situation. However, since then, the professional has um, done remediation. They've done some training. So is their fitness perhaps impaired right now? No, it isn't because what they have done to bring them up to sort of standard is fine. So on they go and continue practicing. There are some, you know, some bad people out there and people have been taken advantage of in some of the cases that I remember. And, and that's that public protection element. So I think that's instilled in me that sort of, um, that need to, to take care of people, um, and not being from a clinical background. I suppose that's a bit of a way that I was able to help contribute to that working um, in that area, in that space. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a big theme that I see in your, in your career is really just this idea of kind of interconnectedness and community service serving serving kind of a greater a greater cause and so it's great to see how that kind of thread runs through um starting with your your background in in health protection to to where you are now you know working with social enterprises and doing community projects and such they're kind of different in a way obviously one informs the other but there's just that kind of central vision I suppose would you agree yeah, it, it really stems from that. And the Health and Care Professions Council, so it's a very insular kind of organisation. Like I said, before I started there, I had no idea that such organisations existed. Um, and many of the public don't until it gets to that point of actually, well, where do I go to get some recourse to something that's happened to me? And then that's where I sort of started thinking about what it's like for members of the public, actually. So there's a very big focus, obviously, on the professional with HCPC. And whether they are, you know, doing the right or wrong things. But then there's a patient, a service user, a resident at the, you know, the end of that. Um, so what's their experience? You know, how do they feel? And um, so becoming a bit more aware of that. And as an individual as well, thinking about, you know, my rights and how I'm able to give voice. Cause that's what I saw the HCPC being able to do is somebody saying, this happened to me. Somebody may need to be held accountable. So, you know, how do I do that? And that's kind of flowed through the things that I now do. And certainly being able to um, give people understanding of what it is to be in what we are now, integrated care systems. And that's what saw me kind of move into um, to consultancy at, at PwC. And somebody like me, my background, you know, getting into an organization like that, that's actually quite something. Um, I mentioned my degree. Uh, I'm not an accountant. And I'm not from that background, um, which I think when people think of the big four, automatically think of financial and that kind of accounting side of thing. And I ended up working on quite a large delivery project for NHS England. It was when clinical commissioning groups still existed and they're sort of rationalizing, you know, CCGs, I think being ready to move toward um, ICS integrated care systems. And I worked on the pilot of them as well. So I saw some of the first Vanguard ones coming into being, which would then mean they'd then be the model for the 
number that we have across England now, I think it's 42 in total. Yeah, that's really, you know, pivotal, a big landmark, I suppose, or a, a point of reference as well. So it's, I mean, it's really interesting to see how your, your career has unfolded. And you mentioned how it, it, it didn't seem, perhaps it didn't seem like a likely thing for you to get to work at PwC. How did it feel for you at that time to get that role? Um, was it kind of affirming of your confidence um, in that moment? Or did you kind of have to build your confidence in a way to be able to apply for that kind of role? I, I just think it's really interesting because I think a lot of the time we assume something about ourselves and we we count ourselves out before we even get an opportunity for someone else to count us out, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. And it really resonates. So the way in which the structure works inside PwC is there are different um, uh, ranks, I suppose you could call them. If I can associate a senior associate manager, senior manager, director, then partner, you know, everyone in one of those organizations, a lot of people actually want to you know, go on that track and become a partner. All those bonuses that everybody hears about kind of thing. So I actually applied to be a manager at PwC based on my uh, experience of you know, working, what, what I had done previously. Um, and I was interviewed and it took a lot of time. Actually, I just assumed that I hadn't been successful because I heard nothing. And I'd actually accepted another job as being head of registration for the General Optical Council, I think it was. And they got this out of the blue kind of, oh, we'd like you to come for an interview. So I interviewed for the manager role. Um, I was offered a senior associate role. So the person that interviewed me obviously felt that I wasn't at that level. And it was quite telling to me once I got into PwC that I think that knocked my confidence actually, because I was operating at the senior associate level, which is quite junior within an organization. You know, I'm in my mid thirties, I think at that point, there's lots of people who have graduated they're on that graduation track, you know, they're going through the ranks kind of thing. And I saw other managers in there and I'm like, I'm at that level, you know, I'm operating at this level here, but to be sort of brought in, they're kind of like a step down, I suppose. But I did see opportunities in there in terms of, I mentioned that I'd been offered another job. I turned that down to work at PwC. I thought there are some potentially really, really good opportunities in here and building up skills and kind of knowledge and experience um, would be quite, I think, beneficial. So I accepted the role and within a year I was then promoted to a manager. Amazing. What, what did you learn about yourself through that process? What you're saying to me really resonates in the sense that when I was considering changing career and, and looking at different tracks and things, I was, you know, I spent a lot of time exploring my options. Sometimes what would stop me was just this idea that I'd have to start all over again, or I'd have to start at kind of a lower station in some way. Transitioning into something different actually requires a lot of humility a lot of the time. And I think it is, it's a difficult process. I think you do learn so much about yourself and it's a, it's a character building process. So I'm curious, you know, what did you learn from that experience? So I come from basically the public sector. So going into a corporation, you know, uh, the private sector, such as PwC, still working with public sector clients. And it was really telling the, the investment actually that goes into individuals that work there. The opportunities I got to learn new software I'd never heard of, things like Power BI, Alteryx, you know, looking at those sort of pieces of software that we can drill down into data, give you nice visualizations and that kind of thing. It was really telling in that sense. For me as an individual, 
the initial first couple of months, I thought I'd made a mistake or I'm really not enjoying this. There was a really full-on project that I was a part of. And I was like, well, that's just how it is in this organization. You know, it's just they absolutely are like working me to the point of thinking, why, what am I doing here? You know, this, I've, I've made a terrible mistake kind of thing. But that particular situation, it was just one of those projects which was really quite full-on. And so I stuck with it. And resilience, I suppose, I learned because I did continue and met some key people, some really supportive people who I still think of today who got me through, who took time out to sort of listen to me, to hear how I was feeling. That is so important, massively so. I think without that, I would have been, you know, like I'm, I'm going to head off kind of thing. Mm, that's so, so interesting. A few things that you said have sparked some thoughts in my mind. One is just this idea of when you are throwing yourself into doing things, you don't have enough time to focus on the negative side of emotion. And it's really interesting. If I can find um, this podcast I was listening, listening to the other day, we're talking about how it was with um, Cal Newport's podcast. And um, he wrote um, this, this book, um, it's called Deep Work. And he was talking with his guests, who I can't remember the name of. They were saying that when you're feeling depressed or you are um, just kind of in a negative state of mind, just doing things, just actually acting and just whatever it is, going to wash your dishes or doing something else is, is really, really important because you cannot physically dwell sit and dwell in what they call the sadness pathway while you're you're doing something so it's really it's interesting what you say about being super you know interested and just focusing on the project I think that's such a good way to to go about things when you've made a decision and you're not entirely sure if it's the right one but it's too soon to see you just have to go with it and and try as much as you can to make the most of it and and see where you go the second thing though, before I forget, it was about community, really, because I, I agree with you that when you are doing something new, you do need a little bit of validation. I know a lot of people say, oh, you can't, you can't wait for validation all the time, but you do need to get a little bit of feedback. And I think it's so, so essential that you do find a community when you are trying something new. And when you, when you move into a new space, you need to find a new set of people as well, right? And it's 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 interesting going back to health boundary again. I found that you know when I was transitioning, I I never knew something like health boundary existed, and now that I'm there, I'm I'm meeting all of these different people. It's opening up loads of opportunities as well, and so um I I think what's really really special about health boundary is that you are kind of creating that community of of people that are a lot of the time in a similar position where they're trying something new and you can share your thoughts and things and you can get that kind of validation, particularly when you're, you're not in a, in a space where you have a boss or you, you have someone to, to tell you exactly what to do or whether you've done it right. I'm, I'm curious, are there things out there or particularly when it relates to Health Foundry, what, what can Health Foundry do to help people who want to transition into tech, specifically kind of health tech? The point about the network, you know, the being able to speak to people who are on a similar pathway, who have actually been on that pathway as well, and have, you know, either got to a certain point, got to a certain stage, and they're able to and happy to provide advice, guidance, just to general, you know, sort of somebody to talk to. I think that's one of the most important parts. We put on regular events to have our members interact with each other. 
So just just yesterday, in fact, you know, we were both there. We had um, our annual summer party. Um, we have bi-monthly members lunches because um, we really want to instill that kind of um, that, that conversation that could lead to something that people didn't know was possible in the first place. You know, so we're not working in bubbles. It's a very open space. You know, there's uh, and we have what we call anchor members who are there. You know, most days of the week maybe more established in terms of where they are on their journeys, but they're very happy to provide help, support and guidance, you know, to uh, members who are on that start of the journey because they were there themselves before. So it's kind of like a bit sort of like a timeline of people who have been the very beginning ideation stage. Okay. Need to think a bit more about this now, you know, and on along that journey as well, we provide what we call the ecosystem. And it's really relevant in that sense of, we have made connections with experts in things such as intellectual property. We're about to kick off a legal clinic, you know, from somebody who is versed in working with health tech startups specifically. We're doing a workshop on branching out into overseas markets. There's one called Coming to America. You know, so we've linked in with people. And these are all free for our members as well. There's a um an understanding of if a I mentioned the legal clinic, for example. It will have office hours. You can send an email into, you know, get some advice. There would be a point where if that's becoming, okay, this is quite involved now, you know, we'll be a bit technical here. Um, there'll be then a conversation about what that might commercially look like between the member of Health Foundry and the supporter in terms of our community supporters, um, which we don't have any kind of, you know, um, sale. We don't get commission or anything like that. We're not looking for that. Um, it then becomes between, you know, a relationship between yourselves and that provider, as it were. Mm, I mean, those are all incredible things. I, I mean, I've learned, I've learned a few things myself to just you telling me about it. So I'm going to definitely check that out for myself too. You, you mentioned about how it's a very open space and, um, you are encouraging these kinds of conversations that just spark ideas in people's minds because they discover something new and then they can put that together with maybe something that they know already and they can create something new. And I, I, I think that's a really special thing because I think in the health sector, we are very, very siloed and everyone kind of stays in their lane. But as I say, inspiration strikes and great solutions are found when we step into a different space or we talk to someone different. But what do you think that we can do, perhaps on a personal level, maybe on, on an organizational level, given your background in health strategy, what do you think we can do to cross-pollinate ideas and form links between, say, clinicians and people working in health tech and people working in health policy or in finance so that we are just generating more and more ideas? I think there's a that getting together part, that networking part is massively important, but not just for the sake of doing so. There's many people that I've heard say, you know, this, this great thing is being designed, but there's been no clinical input, for example. So it's about being able to, you know, okay, this is great, but this is how it would work on the front line. You know, if I'm a midwife, then, you know, this application, which is, says it's going to save me time, but you haven't actually been onto, you know, a maternity ward to see what that actually looks like. And a maternity ward in one hospital may be very different to a maternity ward in another. So just being having that wide kind of horizon scanning piece, I would say, to think about what that might look like. But the person who ends up using that, and certainly the case for a a service user, a patient, a resident even, you know, think about social services or things such as that, because 
what we try and do in health as well is instill a diversity at the beginning stage of something. You know, don't forget everybody who this could eventually help. Think about us as different individuals with our own unique characteristics and don't forget that there are those differences. You know, somebody who's mixed heritage, um, who's from the LGBTQ plus community, you know, there are health inequalities, you know, across the board. Now, because of how I work, where I work, what I've done, my knowledge, I, I know what they are and how to navigate certain things in the system. That's not the case for everybody. So thinking about making sure those voices are part of that design immediately from the very get-go. So we're not an afterthought at the end of it. As, oh, yeah, we didn't think about these particular characteristics. So, you know, we have to like redo it. Well, we weren't there in the first place. It was like an add-on sometimes. Um, so I think about that for gender, for you know, sexuality, all different types of characteristics. He's bringing that personal, well, bringing that person into the thing. But that's what I love about Hell Foundry. Majority of folks who are there, all folks basically, are there because they want to help people. And there are so many organizations, so many members at Health Foundry who've created their, their product, their service, their design, their pathway based on personal experiences of either own personal experiences or loved ones' personal experiences. I've been through a situation where, you know, this is awful, truly is. Um, this has to, there's got to be a better way of doing this. Yeah, let's look into how that is and what that looks like. It's that horizon scanning piece, but making sure that there's a connection to the wider community. In digital exclusion, for example, older people are generally going to need more healthcare, where everything being pushed to digital, we need to remember that that isn't everybody's first choice of accessing certain things. So, yeah, how do we make it more accessible? Or do we just understand that, that this isn't going to be for everybody all of the time? And not just have an attitude of, well, you know, yes, you've got to be that way. There's always going to be that need and that difference. Yeah, I, th I completely agree with you, especially, you know, talking about the digital exclusion piece as well. It's, it is really, really, you know, reassuring that a, um, a co-working space or an organization that's around health tech is talking about digital exclusion because I feel like it's something if you are working in the technology space you want to not think about because that <laughs> that isn't something that you're dealing in right you want to sweep that under the carpet in a sense but it's really really great that you are having these conversations around diversity around inclusion because you and I have talked about this before we talked about diversity we were saying how it's really really important that we think about that because the 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 thoughts that the initial thoughts or the the perspective that we take when we are designing these things creating these things has an impact on who actually benefits from it at the end so i mean i'd love to hear a little bit more about your personal experience that has made it important for you to to change this can you share a little bit more it's hearing things it's hearing things for the first time it's it's the one that i always repeat and the one that always um sticks with me is how black women are more likely to die during childbirth than white women. And it, it's like, and this has been something that I've been hearing for quite some time now, but there doesn't seem to be any movement on that. It's just, oh, you know, yeah, this is still a thing. And I'm kind of like, how is that the case? You know, how is that like anatomically, biologically, you know, that there's very little difference. Like, well, how is that a thing? And it gets into the point of view of there's not, I don't think that there's much actual tech perhaps that can solve that there's there's something else within that happening you know and how is that the case and thinking about the way in which 
some people, some people's pains perceived by others. So there's, um, I think it's a, a case study of pain scales of a black person. You know, a doctor says, what's your pain scale on a scale of, you know, zero being none, 10 being excruciating. And, you know, a black person might say eight, you know, and subconsciously or not, a black clinician might actually, you know, you know probably not that at all. It's more like a six. So not being, you know, recognized and heard. That's from my social background, because as I said, I'm not, I'm not clinically trained. You know, it's recognizing how that exists and why it exists. And again, not being designed out of the process itself. Those are the kind of things that kind of keep going. We mentioned digital exclusion. So think about older people. It's bringing them in as well and saying, well, how would this work for you? You know, what would make it better? What would make it easier? Um, and one of our members called Longlive, they've designed a wearable device for older people. And through being a member of Health Foundry, we've connected them with the local Age UK in Lambeth to sort of talk to the cohort, talk to Age UK's members and, you know, be actually be part of their MVP. So it's kind of recognizing that those voices need to be in there from the get-go, as we said before. So that's the kind of, you know, things that I try and bring into Health Foundry as well as so the events that we run. You know, we had a, a event on diversity a couple of months ago now. Um, and you know what that means actually. And having people in the room who have the experience of designing, but also of being, is really important and quite powerful. Yeah. So much of what you say resonates with me, obviously, for me as a black woman hearing these awful statistics all of the time. It's it's um you know, it's it's difficult to to hear these things and not want to do something about it. But I guess it goes back to your earlier point that a lot of the people who are working at Health Foundry, they have some kind of personal connection to the thing that they're creating. So, I, I mean, I, I hope the events and things that you're putting on, I think they're wonderful. I think it's really great that you are really talking about diversity and that you're encouraging more and different people to come in because we, we want to work with more people who feel the personal connection to and a desire to change things like the maternity death rate in black women. Um, it's part of why I'm you know passionate about designing as well, because I, I think about my family members' experiences, some of my experiences with healthcare. And um we, we just need more people who care on a on a deeper level that these things need to change and can also think about it in a more global sense, not just tech will solve everything. Tech can't solve everything. We are still people and we have to think about how people actually behave, right? So I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about maybe one of these projects and some of the strategies that are being used to tackle these complex health issues. Yeah. So I am a Lambeth resident in Southeast London um, and I work with Lambeth Together, which is a, a joint venture um, with Lambeth Local Authority, Lambeth Council, and um, their public health team, uh, and also the sort of local NHS, if you will. And it's about the ability to reach people. You know, there's this phrase called hard to reach, and it's kind of like, well, no, we're not hard to reach. We've always been here, you know, so um, that's not the approach, actually. And doing things in a different way and there was a really great project um, that we piloted, um, well, piloted in Lambeth for the first time called the Healthy Church Initiative. And 
it is in recognition that um, there is a lot of distrust and mistrust, and the two things you know are distinct within medical professions from members of um, some members of the black community in other communities as well. So this initiative worked with majority black churches managing diabetes and looked at ways in which you know language is given. Thinking about things such as you know you have the food pyramid charts and things like that, and not everybody is going to always recognise some of the things that are on there, or not seeing fruits and vegetables that they would usually associate with you know either being healthy or not or things like that. So it's not just this one size fits all kind of approach, and also language as well. In some cultures, being big is actually seen as being healthy. You know, it's being seen as so the way in which you say certain things. It's like, you know, being the best version of yourself, for example, rather than saying you're overweight, you need to lose weight. And going into churches, there's more trust within, you know, somebody's local pastor, for example. So giving kind of like training and having sessions within within churches about healthy living, healthy eating, that kind of thing, and speaking about it in a different way. So it was that kind of, um, you know, that kind of approach, which is being rolled out across London and other areas of London and probably the UK as well. to Think about things in a different way, like not being done to you, but you know, being done with you. Like saying, you know, you've got diabetes, you need to stop eating this, that, and the other. And like, well, actually, let's have a conversation about how I can actually do that first of all, with whatever you know my constraints may be, financially, culturally. You know, don't just come and tell me not to do something. <laughs> yeah, I hear that definitely. I think language is so important, as you're saying. Even that phrase "hard to reach" is almost like blaming people rather than rather than seeing it as there's a there's a different there's a cultural difference or there's a cultural barrier in place, but it's not it's not intentional <laughs> in any kind of way. And 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 you're so I I agree with you. I I, I used to think about this actually because um, I never when I was working in in Bristol I didn't really get to work with. The community that I was used to being around, lit coming from living in South London. So I, I would think sometimes, you know, when we're talking about conversations around diet and such, I would wonder how would this conversation go with, say, a Nigerian woman when you're, you know, you're giving her just stock information that you generally give to people, and it's it's not gonna it's gonna land on deaf ears essentially because. They want to eat what they want to eat. They 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 eat yam. They eat jollof rice. They you know they they eat plantain. How are we gonna how are we gonna work with the diet that they have their preferences in a much in a much more cohesive kind of way in a way that actually resonates with them? It's a really key question, and it's great that you are asking these questions. I I guess I'm I'm really interested to pick your brain a little bit more because. You know, you you do a lot of work around health strategy, so I'm really curious to know what frameworks and tools, or even questions, do you ask yourselves? What what do you think about when you are doing some long term um, planning or visioning? What what questions do you ask yourself, or what what do you use to um to help you do this to achieve that? So someone else who's striving for a major goal, like overcoming a, a major social health issue can also take that for themselves. It's like all the VCSE, the Voluntary Community and Social Enterprise Sector, actually the VCFSE, Voluntary Community Faith and Social Enterprise Sector, we just gave the example of um, working in churches. 
sometimes it's working with what exists. Like we mentioned, you know, we're now all part of integrated care systems. Um, so there are five that span across London. Um, so South East London integrated care system, Southwest, et cetera. Um, and who knows how long they'll be around for because we've had primary care trusts and, you know, strategic health authorities, et cetera. But this one feels like to me personally, anyway, um, and professionally that it's probably the right kind of approach. It's a bit more forceful in terms of local authorities working together within public health, within the NHS, but it's the voluntary community and social enterprise sector, I think, which is key because it's us people. So working with those groups who know their neighborhood, who know how to speak to their neighborhood and know what the neighborhood needs, you know? Um, so absolutely key is that. And thinking about how we can bring people along from the get-go, you know, doing things in, you know, a bubble and only then coming out at the end of something. So, you know, we've designed this great thing, you know, isn't it wonderful? Like, well, actually, you know, this isn't going to work for me because of X, Y, and Z, you know. Um, even when we think about digital, when we think about apps, when we think about things, not everybody can afford a data plan. Not everybody has, you know, the latest or updated iPhone or Android or whatever it might be. So there's a whole swathe of people immediately excluded. So what does that look like? So when thinking about designing something which requires those kind of things, well, actually, should we put on our process, our, you know, sort of Gantt chart, a conversation with the local health authority where we are to see if they have anything like a scheme which gives people free access to internet, to data. If we're going to go in guns blazing saying, you know, this is our approach, we want it to be iPad or iPhone or Android, you know, other software is available. And um, then we need to think about how this has an impact on those that can't actually access it. You know, so I think this is mindset of the app is the answer, but it's not going to be the answer for everybody. It's the answer in your mind because you're designing this wonderful thing. And no doubt it is a wonderful thing. You know, there, we've seen some fantastic examples. So thinking about that long-termism, we're still in a cost of living crisis as well as the other thing. So, you know, what might be the next kind of um, challenge for people? What, you know, there may be the likely to be a change in government. So, you know, what, what will their priorities become? It's looking that far ahead. There's a very strong push toward life sciences at the moment under the current government. You know, is that going to be the same for um, another new government? So it's having that, that long-term kind of thinking about things that you may not necessarily have thought about. I know it's kind of like, you know, Jari's window, like the things we do and don't know about, but it's uh, definitely one to sort of consider. And where you're going to be in terms of, you know, geographically, what does the neighbourhood look like? What does the region look like? And what does that look like nationally? Yeah, absolutely. This has been, this has been a very, very interesting conversation with you, Chris. I have to say, I just want to end with a question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. I, wish, I just want you to imagine for a moment that you are the dean of a university. What would you want clinicians and healthcare professionals, people who are going into working in healthcare, what would you want them to learn about social entrepreneurship to better prepare them to make an impact in the world of healthcare? I want them to learn that that is key. It is really where the, the magic happens, to use a bit of a cheesy phrase, because in that sense of the conversations that happen, you know, the people 
who exist that you are at my university to go on and help, you know, they need to be engaged with, they need to be spoken, they need to be spoken with and understood as well, you know, from their point of view. Your textbooks may say this, that, and the other, but, you know, go and speak to the actual person and hear from them and hear their experiences because that is what it is to be. Bring that social entrepreneurship into the clinical is, I think, is, is very much key. And I take it back to that point about ICS as the integrated care systems, you know, that, that care part is in there. And you mentioned clinical, but, you know, it's, it's a massive part of it, of course, but it is that connectivity. You know, I think that's, we're being signaled to, to look at that and recommend reading the Fuller Stock Take report as well. That's what I, yeah, ask them to do <laughs> a bit of homework. Yeah, that's what you'd, what you'd include in, in the, in the curriculum. <laughs> that's a great, that's a, that's a great, a great point. How, how do you think people, just the last follow up question, how, how do you think if you were, if you were able to influence the curriculum, what would you, what, what, classes or what would you include in the curriculum experiences that the students might have that could help them to develop that kind of sense of social entrepreneurship? It's an interesting question. I think um, we haven't actually, you know, touched on AI. And the reason I think about that is that there is a, you know, it's coming into its own in a way. Uh, I had a conversation just earlier on this week about there's been iterations of for quite some time. It's just now called AI. But there is a need to not see that as the panacea, not see that as the, you know, the be all and end all. The AI is going to sort everything out. You know, it might help you get, it might help you get to your own decision quicker than it would have done normally, but it's still you making, you know, the decision. If AI tells you something, I think there's an 80% probability of this. And you might adjust when you next see that person rather than saying, okay, well, I'm going to blindly follow what this is telling me. There still has to be a person in there as the clinician, you know, that feeling. Okay. So just, just encouraging people to, to get away from the technology for a moment. You know, digital detox when we talk about those things. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's so refreshing to hear that from someone who works in a, in a kind of in a health tech space or adjacent to health tech that actually that, that could help us to make tech and our experience of healthcare better. Yeah. Wise words. Thank you so much for coming on, Chris. It's a pleasure, Brian. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Brand New Doctor. I hope it inspired you in your personal journey. Check out the notes for a summary of the show with all of the important links. And if you enjoyed this, do me a favor. Subscribe and share this episode with someone else you think could benefit from this message. I'd love to hear from you. So why not leave a rating and review? It really helps other people to discover the podcast too. You can also find me on LinkedIn as Rolakeojo and on Instagram as Rolakeo.so. So that's all for now, but I'll be back soon with another episode of Brand New Doctor.